Chapter One of the Master Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. The Master Mystery by Arthur B. Reeve and John W. Gray. Chapter One. Peter Brent sat nervously smoking in the library of his great house, Brent Rock. He was a man of about forty-five or six, a typical shrewd businessman. Something, however, was evidently on his mind, for though he tried to conceal it, he lacked the self-assurance that was habitually his before the world. A scowl clouded his face as the door of the library was flung open and he heard voices in the hall. A tall, spare, long-haired man forced his way in, crushing his soft black hat in his hands. "'I will see Mr. Brent,' insisted the newcomer as he pushed past the butler. "'Mr. Brent!' he cried, advancing with a wild light in his eyes. "'I'm tired of excuses. I want justice regarding that water motor of mine.' He paused, then added, shaking his finger threateningly, "'Put it on the market, or I will call in the Department of Justice.' Brent scowled again. For years he had been amassing a fortune by a process that was scarcely within the law. For when inventions threatened to render useless already existing patents, necessitating the scrapping of millions of dollars' worth of machinery, vested interests must be protected.' Thus, Brent and his partner, Herbert Balcom, had evolved a simple method of protecting corporations against troublesome inventors and inventions. They had formed their own corporation, International Patents Incorporated. Their method was effective, though desperate. It was to suppress the inventor and his labor. They bought the sole rights from the inventor, promising him glittering royalties, the joker was that the invention was suppressed. None were ever manufactured. Hence there were no royalties, and the corporations went on undisturbed, while Brent and Balcom collected huge retainers for the protection they afforded them. Thus Brent Rock had come to be hated by scores of inventors defrauded in this unequal conflict with big business. The inventor looked about at the library, richly paneled in oak and luxuriously furnished. Through a pair of folding doors he could see the dining room and a conservatory beyond. All this had been paid for by himself and such as he. "'Sit down, sir,' nodded Brent suavely. The man continued to stand, growing more and more excited. Had he been a keener observer, he would have seen that under Brent's suavity there was a scarcely hidden nervousness. Finally, Brent leaned over and spoke in a whisper, looking about as though the very walls might have ears. "'My dear fellow,' he confided, "'for some time I have been considering your water motor. I will return the model to you. Release the patent to the world.' He drew back to watch the effect on the aged inventor. Could it be that Brent was lying? Or was it fear? Could it be that at last his seared conscience was troubling him? 
At that exact moment, upstairs, in a private laboratory in the house, sat a young man at a desk, a handsome, strong-faced, clean-cut chap. All about him were the scientific instruments which he used to test inventions offered to Brent. A look of intent eagerness passed over his face. For Quentin Locke was not testing any of Brent's patents just now. Over his head he had the receivers of a dictograph. It was a strange act for one so recently employed as manager of Brent's private laboratory. Yet such a man must have had his reasons. One who was interested might have followed the wire from the dictograph box in the top drawer of the desk, down the leg of the desk, through the very walls to the huge chandelier in the library below, where, in the ornamented brasswork, reposed a small black disc about the size of a watch. It was the receiving end of the dictograph. Suddenly the young man's face broke out into a smile, and without thinking he stopped writing what the little mechanical eavesdropper was conveying him from below. He listened intently as he heard a silvery laugh over the wire. "'Oh, I didn't know you were busy. I thought these flowers—' "'Well, never mind. I'll leave them anyway.' It was Ava Brent, daughter of the head of the firm, who had danced in from the conservatory like a June zephyr in December. "'My dear,' Locke could hear the patent magnet welcome, "'it is all right.' Stay a moment and talk to this gentleman while I go down to the museum. Locke listened eagerly, glancing now and then at a photograph of Ava Brent on his own desk, while she chatted gaily with the inventor. It was evident that Ava had not the faintest idea of the hard nature of the business of her father. Meanwhile, Brent himself had left the library and passed through the portier door into the hall. He did not turn up the grand staircase in the center of the wide hall, but hurried, preoccupied, to a door under the stairs that opened down to the cellar. He started to open it to pass down. As he did so, he did not hear a light footstep on the stairs as his secretary, Zita Dane, came down. But he did not escape her watchful eye. "'Mr. Brent,' she called. Is there anything I can do? Brent paused. Wait a moment for me in the library, he directed, as he turned again to enter the cellar. He closed the door, and Zita watched him with an almost uncanny interest, then turned to the library to join Ava and the newcomer. Down the cellar steps Brent made his way, and across the cellar floor, pausing at the rocky wall of the foundation of the house, blasted and hewn out of the cliff on which it towered above the river. A heavy steel door in the rock wall barred the way. Brent whirled the combination and shot the bolts, and the door swung ponderously open, disclosing a rock-hewn cavern. Three walls of the cavern were lined with shelves containing inventions of all kinds, telegraph and telephone instruments, engine models, railroad signaling and safety devices, racks of bottles containing dangerous chemicals and their antidotes, 
all conceivable manner of mechanical and scientific paraphernalia. It was literally a graveyard of genius, harboring the ghosts of a thousand inventors' dead hopes. Brent entered hastily and went directly to a shelf. There he picked up a model of a motor. He blew the dust from it and examined it approvingly. Suddenly he saw something that caused him to start. He looked down at his feet. There was a piece of paper on the floor. He picked it up and read it, and as he did so he started back, frightened, then angry. He looked about at the rock-hewn cavern walls, then read again, Brent, this is my last warning. If you persist in your course, you will be struck down by the Madagascar madness. Q. Under his breath, Brent swore. Again he looked about the cavern, then turned hurriedly, picked up the motor, passed out the steel door, clanged it shut, and locked it. No sooner had Brent shut the door, however, than it seemed as if the very face of the outer rocky wall of the cavern began to move, to tilt, as if on hinges. If a human eye had been in the graveyard of genius at that instant, it would have sworn that it perceived in the inky blackness of the tilting rock a passage, and in the shadows of that passage a huge, weird, grotesque figure peering in. Then the tilting rock door closed again, as the figure disappeared down the rocky passage on the opposite side, a menace and a threat to the owner of Brent Rock, insecure even in his millions. End of chapter 1 Recording by Roger Moline